podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, this is the Anfield Wrap. I'm Gareth Roberts. I'm joined today by Andy Heaton, Ian Ryan and Paul Senior. A uh, bit of a show with a difference today. Uh, all the transfer tattle is over on our subscription feed on the Gutter Show. <coughs> Rob Gutman will be getting ridiculously excited over there about the potential ins to follow in the footsteps of Mohamed Salah. Uh, here, though, we're doing something else. It's a bit of a, a podcast in two parts. Uh, the, the crew are joining me. We're going to talk about Liverpool's two high-profile appointments off the pitch this summer, really in the shape of Peter Moore, the new chief executive, and the and the new head of club and supporter liaison, uh, Tony Barrett. I want to talk about really sort of what we as fans want from Liverpool, because uh, I've seen a lot of chat over the weekend on social media, which was simply stemmed from the fact that Peter Moore has unlocked his Twitter account and is having a conversation with people here and there. Uh, he's taken some abuse, he's given some back. He's coming across a bit like a human being, really. Um, some people like that. Some people don't like that. Um, some people have certain standards that they think people who work for our club should behold to, if you like, if that's the word. Um, some people talk about what the club's identity should be and shouldn't be. And I just wonder, really, you know, what what makes it a de facto good club? What is the right behaviour for Liverpool Football Club, if you like? What's the, what should the identity be? So we'll get into a little bit of that. We're looking to do half an hour or so on that. And then after that, uh, I'm joined all the way from Australia by Simon Strachan, who is the co-founder of Gainline. Uh, they're a sports analytics company, and along with his business partner, Ben Darwin, they both worked at the top level in rugby union over in Australia. And they've got some really interesting theories that are now being applied across all sports, including football and including in the Premier League as well, uh, particularly around uh, squad stability and team cohesion. So I'll be chatting to Simon about all that later on. But first, then, let's let's get stuck into Peter Moore, first of all, the new chief executive at Liverpool. Um, he's been the subject of, of some attention, as I say, because he's basically upped his Twitter game recently, Paul. Uh, some examples uh, over the weekend then. Uh, Grant Portman tweeted them, said, uh, if Aubameyang's available for £63 million, as reported, and would come, please get him. Uh, you would recoup, recoup most of the money in shirts. To which Peter Moore has replied, well, all the profits would disappear with the cost of lettering the shirts. He got another one from uh, Forza, at Forza Redman, who also calls himself Shipman's Lethal Jab, um, which is nice, isn't it? Um, he says, this new LFC chief exec seems a fucking helmet like Gold and Sullivan at West Ham. Just do your job, lad, and stay out the limelight. To which Peter Moore has replied, mate, you're on your holidays with the fam. Have another pint and we'll chat when you get back. Up the reds. Uh, John, he, he he got involved in the conversation. He said, laddie's boss, Forza Peter Moore. And Shipman's lethal jab came back. Mate, I'm of the opinion he should be grafting signings, not chatting shite to me. And Peter Moore was back in again. He said, come on, it's Saturday night. Giz an hour off, will you? And... Uh, Shipman's lethal jab replied, haha, okay then, next Saturday. Um, so yeah, in all seriousness, um, you know, Peter Moore's arrived, he's got his feet under the table, starting to make himself known now. Uh, this seems to be his style. People who, who sort of followed him when he was involved at EA Sports uh, report that he was he was similarly open and honest, if you like, when he was there and used to engage with fans there as well. He's had to sit down with the press, he's had a bit of a chat with them. Uh, he's also exchanged emails with us at one point. Uh, we are trying to get him on, hopefully one day. So, uh, Peter, if you're listening, 
get that sorted. But in general, he's, he's trying to provide that image, isn't he, Paul? Open, honest, accessible, all that type of thing. And, you know, how do you feel about that as a Liverpool fan? Yeah, I think we're, we're guilty as a fan base for uh, sort of contradicting ourselves sometimes. People are saying about Michael Edwards, the man that doesn't speak. You've got a fellow there who's, you know, the polar opposite, I suppose, who's... You know, you didn't have V and Air or you have any engagement with the club and this seems to be something that they may be conscious of. So they've got a, a CEO now who are, who's engaging with fans and that's what some people want. I am not want to be bothered either way really. Um if he if he wants to have a laugh on Twitter with fans then and and seem like an accessible human being, then then so be it. I said I said on Twitter over the weekend I can see him getting a Jen Changed, you know, being here a couple of minutes because he'll he'll say something he might regret, and that's that's more to do with um, how hypersensitive I feel like we can be sometimes mm. as a fan base. You know, um, Peter Moore could say one thing which is completely innocent and have it turned into a million different things. And tweets tweets are stories now as well, aren't they? I mean, whether we like absolutely. that or not. You know, tweet someone with a high-profile job at a football club. If, you, as you say, you could tweet one thing and it could, it could really easily turn into a story. I mean, I haven't looked, but I would guess that these tweets we're talking about have probably been a story about you know, oh look at him, he's all wacky and this sort of thing. Because that that's now a thing that that, that newspapers, media organisation report tweets, which mm. I find mad because yeah. I'm a bit of a traditionalist. But that's well, maybe it, the only line thing. they get, you yeah. know, and. Um, I suppose if you want to be constantly up to date what the chief executive of Liverpool's up to, you're probably not gonna. You might get an hour with him once a year, but actually, his his Twitter's by the looks of things going to be quite live. So you know, in the in the days where newspapers need clicks, then they, you know the likes of of the Daily Mail or the Metro who just like put them very quick there and now happening stories out. The bound the bound to make you know column inches on that sort of thing, but for for me. You can't, you can't have it both ways. Do you know what I mean? I, I do, I do fear for him in a little bit, and he might, he might have to learn a, a harsh lesson by being so engaging. But at the at the same time, I, I think it's nice to see that it's a human being. Like I, I always thought, thought Ian Air took a bit of unfair stick. I, I met Ian Air a few times, and in in the job, and he had no problem going out for a pint in Liverpool. But and you know, I think he'd have. He'd probably have had it levelled at him that that he never did that sort of thing. You wouldn't see Ian Air on Castle Street or or in Lark Lane or whatever in Liverpool, but you did. And every time I ever seen him, he'd have a two minute conversation with you about about the club. He'd never overly engage. He'd, he'd stay within the sort of expected parameters. But that that that's fine for me. He didn't shrug me off as as a sort of I'm not talking to you. I'm the CEO of Liverpool. He was. Was happy to engage with someone who was interested. I mean, so some people, for some people, you know, Ian Air did did rub them up the wrong way. I think that's worth saying. I mean, it goes back to maybe the point we said before about you can't win either way. But you know, there was the the, the careful what you wish for mm-hmm. line around the tickets and that sort of thing seemed to rub a lot of people up the wrong way. And the, and the way he sort of wheeled himself out to talk about that and the tone he took, you know, I think it, with hindsight, has got to be judged as a mistake because. You know they got the temperature wrong, obviously over those tickets, and that's why people ended up walking out against Sunderland back then. Um, so I mean, how do you think? How do you think the new fella started, Peter Moore, and, and and what what do you want from him as a fan? How much do you want to hear from him? How access, accessible should he be? What makes you happy? 
I, I think, Robbo, it's a really interesting topic right now because obviously, you know, Peter Moore's been in his job, what, maybe a month or two. Um, we've already touched on, we're going to speak about Tony Barrett as well. I think mm. he was yet to start. Um, and both those appointments are interesting. I mean, you know, Peter Moore's a local lad. He's uh, obviously from, from the area, massive Liverpool fan. He was going to the game, you know, in the late 50s when Shanks was in charge. And I don't think these appointments have been made by kind of, you know, by coincidence, that they've gone out and looked for guys who can potentially relate to, to supporters. Mm. Um, I think the fact that Peter Moore is so happy to get involved, I see that as a good thing because, you know, we've spoken about Michael Edwards on the show and the fact that he's this mystical character. No one knows what he sounds like. All of a sudden, you've got a guy who's willing to engage, willing to get involved, willing to give a little bit of stick back, and I'm all right with that. You know, if people got a little bit, you know, kind of funny about it at the weekend when they were happy to distribute sound. When he come back with a few little comments, he didn't like it. Um, I'd rather have a guy like that who's willing to get involved and, and show a little bit than some guy you never hear about, you never see. You know, it's, I think it's good that he's in the city. Maybe you could argue that maybe he should be based at Anfield, but he's in Liverpool, and I think that's a, that's a great start. Um, so broadly speaking, I'm okay with it. And listen, you know, there's a long time to go. You know, in terms of how good he has, is he at his job? We don't know yet. You yeah. know, in terms of what that role looks like, I think it's interesting that there was a clear kind of definition or, or kind of you know almost um, line in the sand between what was Ian Ayer's role and what Peter Moore's role is. So Ian Ayer was very much involved in transfer activity and negotiations. From the outside looking in early on, does it look like Peter Moore will be actively involved in, in transfer negotiations? That might change. You know, big money signings are happening. I'm sure the CEO gets involved to a point. But in terms of doing that negotiation, I don't think he's going to be playing a massive role in it. Um, I think that'll be left to, to Michael Edwards. But as I, I do think, obviously, it'll be on his radar and he'll certainly play a part. But I don't think it'd be quite you know, intrinsically linked to, say, Ian Airwell. So I think it's, it's going to be interesting. But I think some of the other things to think about are, are the things that um, some of the contributors raised the other day on, on, the, on, the, um, on the YouTube uh, clip about what will his first role be. So it, it could well be things like what happens to the Anfield Road? You know, do mm. we suddenly start to, does that piece of work kick on? You know, Craig uh, Craig mentioned something the other day about maybe looking at staging more more games, more younger, more youth games at Anfield. And again, that's a really interesting one because, you know, we're talking about trying to get local supporters engaged and make the, the team more accessible. And that's something that's probably fallen away over the last kind of, you know, number of years. So, so far, so good, but it's it's very early stages. Do you know what you sorry got us to come across? Yeah, do you know when we're saying like you can't win? You're saying about um, about him needing to be in Liverpool when when we were talking before we even knew who the new mm. CEO was going to be. We were talking about how Billy Hogan's down in London, and we didn't think that was quite right. He's in in the Chapel Street office in Liverpool One, you know the central office, literally <laughs> right right by our office here. Yeah. And now people are going, well, you should be in Anfield. So what happens next? Like, is it a little bit like, well, you should be in an office facing the pitch? What, you know, I, I, I think by the halfway, like, you can't win. Yeah, there's this, there's a thing with it, I think, Andy, and I think this is one of the reasons that we get this always mm. a clash, and this is what Liverpool have got to work on for me, is that there's a feeling that, or there has been a feeling in the past, and this is what they've got to work on to change, that, you know, it's our club. And, it, and, and, you, and us as fans, we go, well, no, it's our club. And and you look at it and you go, well, why why are you secretive about what you're doing over there to our club or your or you know FSG John Henry whatever you want to whoever's got these top jobs all you're doing is holding keys for a f- for a few months and years you're not the club we're the club and that's where the problem comes from I think and that's why they have got to engage with fans and I think it's fair enough that you know the club the club come in for lo- loads of criticism all the time from us as well. Um, but I thought it was a good thing that they went out and engaged with fans. You know, the the I think it was ten thousand questionnaires went out. 
There was 40-odd fans that they spoke to in depth. This, this was a third party as well. It wasn't Liverpool themselves carrying out the research. And the, the results came back, and the results were, no, you're not engaging enough or well enough with fans. And the response to that has been, okay, maybe not Peter Moore and how he's reacting. I think that's more of a personal thing, and that's his choice to do what he's doing. But certainly with the appointment of, of Tony Barrett to his supporter liaison role, that is a big step. That is a big move. That's something that's been called for on the down low for quite a while. I don't think it's it's made headlines, but there's certainly fans being mentioned in it that they don't do that well enough. So it does look like they're attempting to change that relationship between club and fans. I can go either way on it, if I'm being perfectly honest. Um, I mean, on the Peter Moore stuff, just briefly my take on that. I'm sound when I'm doing it, not really my cup of tea. But if you're gonna do it, he's gonna have to he's gonna realise pretty quick that it's easy doing it when the sun's shining. But when you have a bad run, what happens then? Um on the uh, populist consultation, um I have a view and I'm happy for people to disagree, is that after the ticket thing last year, the club were determined to dismantle the cut the um the existing supporter engagement model, which was the committee. Um and my thoughts around that in particular is that they thought that it was dominated by Spirit of Shankly. And by diversifying that, uh, off the back of this um, <clears throat> survey and consultation, it kind of gives them more and more layers. I mean, I actually think there's there's too many committees now. What I will say is that the post of... What's what's the official title of Tony's post, Supporter Liaison? Heads of Club and Supporter Liaison. Okay. Um, I think that's a great move, and I, I don't think there's any... And I'm not just saying this because we know him. I couldn't think of anyone better to, to be put in that post. Um, mainly because I know how much of a spine Tony's got and uh, how much, you know, he'll, he'll stand up for himself if he doesn't think things are right and he'll offer his opinion. Um, I think they're trying. I think they're trying. Whether the, whether this one works out or whether in 12 to 18 months' time they, they want to try something else. Because let's be honest... When they first came in and put the old model in, they said, oh, there'd be quarterly or bi-monthly meetings or six, mm. and the, one of the owners would be there and that never happened. I think yeah, it happened, dropped off, didn't it? I think it happened once. Um, I could see Karen Gill's been retained as well, which is another positive. Cynical, cynical me says, and I'm with, and again, I'm saying this completely transparently, I always look for the, for the negatives and everything with this and then see if I can build an argument from there as to why I'm wrong, is that... Having such a broad change of opinions, what happens when one one subcommittee disagrees with the other subcommittee? Did the club then just cherry pick the the the, the version of the, the line that they want out of it? Um, it's just it's more and more layers of bureaucracy and red tape, and I just think it can. It's involving fans, though. Yeah. No, it's it, involving it, fans it, because I mean, each it says each of the fan for. If anyone hasn't seen how this is going to work, that you know, not 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 only have they taken Tony on, there's going to be five fan forums: one on ticket availability, one on ticket prices, one on the stadium, one on local supporter engagement, and one on equality and diversity. No, I, but, but, All of those strands are supposedly identified by this research. So there'll be a fan forum on each one, and and each each fan forum will be made up of between eight and twelve supporters with one seat being reserved for. So so what happens? Fund. So what happens when? Someone in ticket availability, if t- ticket availability come up with Project X and ticket pricing come up with Project Y and they conflict, because what they're saying is they're not going to have... I, and, I've, and I spoke to uh, Jay at uh, Spirit of Shankly about this and he and he said... He basically turned around and said they're not letting like cross 
cross for they're not letting members sit across two 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 forums. Mm. Um and then they just reported the way they report in the could be there's uh, room there for conflict and contradictions. That's all. Look, it's me. I'm, I'm happy to take the, the cynical view on all this, but I, th- I think I think I think, I think it's I think it's a bold move, and I think they need support and engagements. Whether this is the best way forward, I don't know. But I think Sony's been a a, a try. The, the appointment's been a tri- is a triumph. I think they have to do something. I mean, I think, and I take Andy's point. You know, listen, maybe it, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but. They didn't have to do this, you know. This is this this mm-hmm. this research by, by I think it was Populous who went out and did the, the research. It was over a period of nine months, so they, they've not taken it lightly. Um, they've then gone and appointed someone like Tony, and he said, no doubt, he's got a spine. He's not someone who's going to roll over and have a. Yeah, they know tickled. what it's like. You know what I mean? He, he's he's a you know you could if you're going to pick a voice for the fans, he'd be someone you'd look to and go, it's a perfect fit. And I remember going back to the Sunderland game when when we all kind of debated about whether to walk out that day, and. I remember going to the match with my alpha and, and walking in the ground and thinking, I don't know what to do here. I've, I've got no idea. Um, and as it approached kind of, you know, the 60-minute, 70-minute mark, it felt like the right thing to do. And, and a pair of us walked out. I think if someone like Tony was in place then, that doesn't happen. It probably doesn't get to that situation that it got to. You should never have to walk out of a football match for that reason. So whilst I will sometimes bash FSG over the head around things like maybe taking shortcuts on transfers and not doing enough to put the club back to where they should be, I think at this moment in time, I'm happy to kind of applaud them and say, actually, this looks to be on the face of it going in the in the right direction where there is more of a, a fan's voice uh, in terms of the structure. I think at some point Liverpool are going to go out and and actively kind of, you know, encourage applications for those eight or 12 seats on each group is, is I believe, how it's going to work. Uh, take Andy's point, you know, I think Shankly and Spine Cop are going to sit on there as well. Uh, and some of those... Um, those those five areas are you no, know, they're all really really important areas. So you know things like ticket prices and um, you know ticket availability is always going to be of of massive importance. As is the stadium. You now what happens with the Anfield Road, Robert? You've done stuff on safe stand and what does that mm. look like? At some point, can we incorporate that at Anfield? It's a sensitive subject. It's not an easy one to to broach, but I think there's an appetite out there. So does that come on the agenda at some point? Um, you know, I, and I talk about, go back to Craig's point earlier about um, maybe hosting games, youth youth games, under twenty three games, under eighteen games at Anfield. Don't know whether it's doable because they're a new pitch, but I think it's something that needs to be looked at to try and capture some of that that youth engagement piece, get young fans interested. I took my nephew to uh, the under twenty three game, Liverpool B Spurs last year. Finished three two. He didn't care. It wasn't the first team. He wasn't interested. He just wanted he to go to Anfield. The, yeah. he loved it. Wanted to go and sit in the cop. What's footballers playing red, trying to score goals, sing songs, just feel like he was involved. It's so important to capture people who are at that age now so you don't lose them. So, And there's loads of stuff that Peter and Tony need to work on. And as I say, at this moment in time, we've just got to kind of give them a bit of time. I hope that obviously they're, they're kind of involving fans as much as they can. And the fact that they've set up these forums, I see at the moment, this moment in time only is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, lo- loads of it's loads of it's difficult. I think it's, it's worth saying that everything... We talked about it before on shows, particularly around tickets. Like, you know, whatever you do, however you divvy up tickets, if you like, whatever system you put in place for tickets, someone somewhere isn't happy about mm-hmm. it. You know, you get you get some fans <clears> that come on, you know, to our various platforms and they'll say things like, Well, just get rid of season tickets. And I'll read that and I'll go, Well, hang on. It took me from nineteen ninety five to twenty eleven being on the waiting why, list. Why is it always fellas who haven't got season tickets? You want to get rid of season tickets? <laughs> you know what I mean? 
I, I, and so no one else was going to say it. So, so, so but, but this is what I mean. There's always this. There's always a clash of well, there's this group who want this, and there's this group who want this, and well, I'm not bothered about that. Well, I am, and you know, there's so many Liverpool fans. It, it's hard to meaningful, meaningfully, you know, engage with them. Really, I mean, and and I, I think I, I'm with the line that's been said around the table there of. It, it's credit to them that they're even having a go because they could just yes. put the they could just put the wall up and go. Well, we're running. Well, the you know what? Though my 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 fear with this is that at the minute it's very easy to go. Well, Fenway did point the finger at them. My fear in this, and again, it's probably my paranoia, is that you have these forums and then you can just point it when something goes wrong or they, they make a, an unpopular decision or something like that and go. Well, we've we've. We, we spoke to you about this. This is what the fans forum said. Don't look at us. Don't look at us. I, I, I think it just gives them an out, is what I'm saying. I, I'd like to know, and, and sort of from a commercial, uh, behind-the-scenes point of view, is how ring-fenced is, is Tony's job. Um, because, essentially, how, the, how this works and how any form of employment works is you answer to your employer. Mm. Um if this was me and I was the club, I'd have set up an independent sort of commission that they that they paid or they had a budget for, and that the um, and that the, the stakeholders that that sat on a board of maybe that that commission, and that that represented then the, that that reported back to the club, I should say, so that Tony doesn't have to ever feel like am I stepping out of line here or where thing where there is serious discontent between the supporters on ticketing or or whatever that may be, that he doesn't have to fear giving the answer. And I understand what we're saying, that Tony's got a, a, a spine and, and stuff like that. that that's that's fine, but that's that doesn't feed your kids. Do you but know what I mean? What, my, my, one of my fears, and I've always said, I, I don't think the CEO, I don't think being from Liverpool helps be a CEO of Liverpool Football Club. To you with in some, um, in some and I think to a certain degree that, you know... Whether he likes it or not, and whether he can put up with it, I mean, I've no doubt he can. But Tony as well, because he's from Liverpool and he's so visible, and you know people know who he is. Do they then because if if things start going bad, do they then become lightning rods? Because mm. unfortunately, that does happen quite a bit. And yeah. then what what protections are that are there in there for him and for the pair of them? I mean, even culturally, we were talking about Peter Moore before. It's very much well. It might might not be. An English thing to, see, to 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 have a CEO engaging on 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 social media. That it's very it's very Californian that, and you you just wonder what other cultures he's going to bring in that might seem a little bit not weird but different because that, that you get, you look at these big CEOs of big companies in America they're always at it. I think but again, though, both so, but sorry mate, but both both Peter and Tony know. So so all of this what we're saying so about it, it could be difficult when things are going wrong everyone's going to be on your back all of that mm. they know they know I mean particularly Tony Tony's working in this sphere if you like for so long he's been a fan he's gone the match he's reported on the match so he know he knows all the fans or not all the fans but you know what I mean he knows fan culture because he's been a fan himself he's grown up a fan he's grown up in the city but he's also reported on Liverpool for a long time for you know for the Echo for the Times and then you know lastly Joe. So to, through all that experience, he's got all the contacts he needs. He knows what he's getting into. He knows it's almost to an extent a, po- a poison chalice. And I don't want to put words in Tony's mouth. And hopefully, you know, we'll also get Tony on here at some point to have a chat. But 
they both know that it's it's difficult. I mean, you know, we can have a little laugh about this for a moment, but you know, the fact that people are sending Tony a petition over and over again to get rid of Michael Owen as being a club ambassador. I mean, Sorry. That, you know that, 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 but you know, who's asked? I mean, Absolutely. that that that's you know, I don't like Michael Owen either. I'm not a big fan of him, but I, I think in terms of intray and what's at the top. It's not It's not getting rid of Michael Owen as a club ambassador first on your list, you know what I mean? No, I think what we underestimate as fans as well is that there's there's pressures in any in any job. Where, where Peter Moore's concerned, he's, he's just been in Silicon Valley mm. as a as a top CEO of one of the biggest software companies in the world. Oh, this this job's a step down for him if this, you're, that, if you're exactly. that is This is a step down for Peter Moore. This is his, his farewell plan. This is the dream job that he's, mm. that he's probably taken for... Um, uh, that Liverpool fans don't want to hear that. Being president or CEO of EA Sports or sorry, Electronic Arts, I should say, is a bigger job than being CEO of Liverpool. It's just it's just how it is. The the turnover. I, I would wouldn't be surprised if the turnover of Electronic Arts is far bigger than Liverpool. So that comes with pressures. And if you think, I think it's one that a couple of fans who want them. Well, a, a lot of fans kicking off on Twitter is pressure. Well, try and sit in front of. You know, uh, a board of directors that, that are wondering why your share values dropped and it's mm. devalued the yeah. company by a hundred million dollars overnight. That that's serious. That's serious pressure. That that is outside of a sporting world. This this for Peter Moore is is the job I think that any high level executive that gets into business. You know, I'd I'd love that job if if it's I was a passion project. If, yeah, I, was, if I was in yeah. business at a top level, and I was I was working for Google in London all my life, and you had. You had the opportunity to then come back, and what's what's the dream job that you would love on your CV? This is it for Peter Moore. Mm. So he'll he'll do this, in my opinion, with his heart as much as his head. You know, the thing he's 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 able to do it with his head, but his heart's in the right Don't. place. The same thing for Tony Barris. Mm. You know, you want to you want to do the local job, which he got to do and did it very well at the Echo. You want to do the national job, and he did it very well at the Times. And then he goes to Joe, which is when it's a new media. And he's done it well. This job for Tony uh, as well is one where he gets to go and use his heart and his head because mm. he's now qualified to do both. So I think they're both excellent appointments um, in terms of that. How they're structured and you know the parameters that they get to work within are, are, are a different thing. You, you would have imagined, I mean, I, I take Robbo's point there. I think both will only be too aware of how pressured this is. And I don't think both needed the role either. You know, we, we've talked about, you know, in terms that. of probably money and and maybe even profile they're probably taking a little bit of a step down i think both will expect that there'll have to be some pushback you know tony will know sometimes and paul's right you know sometimes what your employer says you have to just fall in line you know there's nothing you can you can do about it but i think he's of the certain character and nature well he will push back yeah. but he also push back the other way as well you know he's not a he's not a walkover is he and, you know he took that stance with the times where he walked away from that job because he felt you know their coverage of, of hillsborough wasn't anywhere near where it should have been so he walked and went somewhere else I think if he feels he can't do the job properly, I don't see him being in it for very long. I think he'd say, listen, thanks, but no thanks. I'll, I'll, I'll go and be a normal fan and crack on and do something else. And I feel probably the same with Peter Moore. I, I see it, see Andy's point that sometimes being scouts could go against you. He's not lived here for a long time, no, so he's, mm. he's taking a step out of that kind of goldfish bowl, if you like. And I think that the fact that both guys are from the area, they are passionate, they will maybe sometimes leave with the heart. That can sometimes be a problem as well. Um but at this moment in time, I'd, I'd see positivity to, to both of these appointments the, at this moment in time. One, one thing I'd say about Peter Moore, it's worth bearing in mind, one of the things he's big on 
his engagements. One of his bigger, big, biggest successes at EA Sports was like back in the day when we were kids, you just buy a DVD on a game when you stick it in your Xbox, and that was it. You know this FIFA thing where you have to buy these legends cards and yeah. and basically you make more money off the extras that you bolt than on the game, than the actual yeah. game. That was his thing. That was his thing, and he he actually ran that project, and there was a lot of engagement in that, and um, you know it's made EA Sports more money than any other project that, that they've run. I think I read somewhere. And he's and he's had a sketch on South Park as well. He so. used to throw himself <laughs> and said there was that rumor as well. You know, he was obviously, um, I think he was kind of was it uh, at Xbox and, and kind of pushing um, one of the games there, like Halo Two or something. And he kind of threw him in, himself so much. There was a rumor that he had like the, the release date tattooed on his arm and stuff like that. So he's clearly got a little bit of like edginess about him as well. And he throws himself into his work. So he's not your. I don't think he's an archetypal kind of CEO. He's doing things a little bit different, isn't he, than the norm? And he's I never, he's got, never been a CEO. You've got to embrace that a little bit, I think. So it's something different, as I say. Well, I mean, the, the the fact that both of these these men, if you like, care cared about the club, I think that's what's so important for me. I mean, I'm not saying Ian Air didn't, but I think Peter Moore will do things differently than Ian Air. Um, Tony's coming into a totally new job, but. You know what we talked about it on our on our new wrap up video. If, if anyone hasn't seen that, that's on our YouTube and on our Facebook. We did a little bit about you know what 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 are the first things that are in Peter Moore's inbox. If you like, what what what's top of his list, and one of the things is just how the club's perceived. I I think that needs a little bit of work. I think you know there's still the, there's still the feeling that the sort of the club ran roughshod a little bit over the Anfield community in terms of not making a decision over that over the stadium for so long. That helped to drive down. You know the prices they are, and there that helped. You know that indecision. It was it was politicians as well. But, you know, it wasn't just Liverpool Football Club, but they certainly played a part. And I think they they need to, you know, they need to make that relationship better, really, with, with local fans. But also as well, I've said this many times as well. You know, rightly or wrongly, whether it's a PR thing, whether it's you know, I I don't know exactly everything Liverpool are doing for charity. It just feels to me as someone who's here that. Everton come out of things smelling mm, the roses more absolutely. often than Liverpool do. They feel like they're closer to the community than Liverpool mm. currently are. And that's wrong because, you know, Liverpool Football Club shouldn't just be about winning football matches and winning uh, trophies. But, it's its relationship with its fans. It's a relationship with its community. It's based in Anfield. It's based in L4. And it should recognise that fact. And I think I think we will see we will see change. I think what's so important about all this is that they recognise that there's a problem. Okay, we can predict it might go wrong. It might not work. This is the difficulties. But they're trying on the on their own on the club website right now. You can go and find this quote. It says the research concluded that the current engagement methods used by the clubs could be improved, with supporters given a low score for how represented they feel. Supporters were also asked to highlight the issues that were important to them. Nearly 60% of respondents said the biggest issue was ticket availability. Ticket prices, stadium-related issues and engagement with local supporters also featured high up in the results. Populous' research concluded that more fans prefer to engage directly with the football club on these important issues. So that's why they're doing it. You know, as we said before, they could just go, we're not bothered. Just just on the the Everton point, though, I think it's easier for Everton to do well out of it uh, simply because they've got more when it comes down to it as you said it comes down to ticketing and access to tickets the fact of the matter is if you want to get a ticket for Everton it's dead easy to get a ticket for Everton and I know they do social media stuff a lot better 
and there's a lot more engagements. You know, I'm sure I'm talking about they do stuff with the homeless, they do stuff with, for charity, and and the more upfront about they do stuff with you know senior members of the community, the more upfront about it. They're making videos about Absolutely. it. They get they get the word out there that they're doing it. Liverpool might be doing it. Um, Liverpool are doing some things. In fact, I've well, I, 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 a lot of the stuff know, they keep quiet. Yeah, they don't. They, they, you don't. You don't big themselves up over it. I mean, you know, for instance, there was the Red Neighbours scheme. And, and the Red Neighbour scheme, for those that don't know, is the idea that, you know, neighbouring schools, Anfield schools, they help some of those kids who ordinarily wouldn't be able to get into the game, couldn't afford the tickets. They get them in there for nothing. They give them the experience to go in a match. I'm sure most people would say I'm right behind the idea of that. But also a lot of people would go, I didn't even know about this. Yeah. And yeah. I I went over the road and I sat with Liverpool myself and I said, listen, I don't think you shout about some of the stuff you do enough or, or well enough or, or using the right channels. And I was, I'll be honest with you, I was trying to big up this as a channel because I was trying to say, well, we can do stuff with you and help tell these stories. We're not here to you know, bang your drum and just be PR, but we, we're, us as fans, we love the club as well and we'd love to tell this story. And it was like pulling teeth, I've got to be honest with you. And and in, in the end, over the Red Neighbours thing, we did, some people who heard the City Talk show will remember it, that, you know, Josh and uh, John went out to some of the schools and spoke to the kids. Essentially, we organised that ourselves. We, we rang up the schools that we knew were involved. We asked, we said, can we come in and speak to you? Yes, and club, the club, the club's response was, we've got our own media channels and, and, and we'll be using them. And, and, and it's, it, it's little attitudes like that that I think need to be challenged because other, not all other football clubs are that way. Man City, for instance, and I know they've got the money, the resource and everything else, but they've had a brilliant relationship with the community they operate in. And just little things, little things that might sound stupid, like, you know, they, they'll help plug fans' websites and things like that. You know, you, you get the feeling that Liverpool wouldn't be bang up for stuff like that. And I think... You know, you need when you've got some leadership at the at the top that says, right, we want to start doing things this way. We want our fans to like us. We want our fans to feel like they're involved. That's a huge step forward, and it kind of feels like that's what they've. But it, it, it's it's the balance, though, isn't it? I mean, give you a specific example on that. When me and you spoke to Lucas, and it went down yeah. really, and it went down really well, and everyone at the club was was happy with it, and thought, and the player was happy with it, and then it, we find out, well, a couple of weeks ago, there was a message that come up from London to to. Up to Anfield saying, well, why weren't LFC TV doing this? Almost as if, you know, they should do it. And then, but the answer back from the team who helped us out was, well, they just wouldn't know. You know, we talk about he wanted to speak to fans. He wanted to speak to fans, and it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have worked that way. But there's always that balance. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Where business, business, and then where business might not necessarily agree, necessarily agree with what, what, what might be ultimately for the best. We said on, on me and Andy did um, AFQ football on tour player last week and we were saying, you know, one of the one of the questions was around how would uh, Rafa have performed under FSG and it got into a sort of wider discussion and I think what, what came out of that was, you know, we're not necessarily in a, still in a place as a fan base, even though FSG have been here quite a while now, that we're still quite burned from mm. from the Hicks and Gillette thing and we're, we're, um, we're big, we're, we're cynics and, yeah. that, that, and that's, that puts the club in a difficult position for me, where they're they're in everything scrutinised, everything, everything. Yeah. And I mean, I came into the show and I said um, off air before before we started that I felt that when the club goes on tour, that they're much more accessible to the to the fans out there than what they are domestically, and that that's my issue. You know, I've brought this up on Twitter a few times, and it, and it'll do me heading again this summer when. They're in Hong Kong or Shanghai or wherever they're going, and that you'll see loads of the fans out there getting selfies and 
you know, autographs or whatever off, off players. And now the players' entrance is under a big roll of shutters and you can't get anywhere. There's a select group of... I don't know how they that, how they do that, but there's a select group of fans that can get near the players for a for a quick photo, but not the not the fifty five thousand people outside on the street. You can't you can't get near them. So and that, that that's it's me being war- cynical it's about that, it's that wall. Well, that's literally a wall, isn't it? Yes. It's it's when you feel like there's a wall. It's a security literal thing. Or, there, literally or literally or metaphorically between you know you and the club. That's that's where the problem. But I've been going the game for well, I've been I've been going the game for twenty five years. I've lived I lived in. West Derby, where our training ground is, and could I ever get near the players? Have I ever been able to get near the players? No, and I, no, I'm trying to do it now as, as an adult. But as a kid, you know what I mean? That, that's the sort of thing you want. And What about the bins, Paul? You know, I, I mentioned off air as well that I felt like you can't even watch training on, on the wheelie bins outside Melwood anymore because there's a big shield. And I, and I, I personally thought that was a good thing the club was on. And that's going to go, you know, because the, the training ground's moving and stuff. <clears throat> and I've got no doubt that Kirby will become absolutely bulletproof for security. Yeah. Mm. I mean, some blades were spoiling it for others. Yeah. I mean, absolutely, there, and there, there's, there's people who were, put, you know, getting things signed and then immediately selling them on, you know, eBay or whatever and, and essentially using it as a business. And I think when that was happening, the club thought, well, we've got to knock that on the head. You know, the things with standing on the bins and watching the training, uh, you know, I think most people are going, you know, what's wrong with that? There's no problem there. And, you know, there's that fantastic pitch from years ago where Shankly is taking training and there's a load of kids sitting that's on the wall and all that's that. Why that's why I said, even Brendan a couple of years ago <laughs> but, when he had the banner over the, over the, over the Melwood wall. But then people started putting the team on the internet. Yeah. And it's like, you know, if you're putting the team on the internet every week, it's not out in Liverpool in football matches, it's giving your hand away to, to the other team. And so they've gone, well, we don't want that to happen. So how are we going to stop that from that more? We'll put the screens up and we'll, we'll tell people to get down from the walls and you know. So you know, society's changed and all that. I think I think the you know the summing up really we could go on forever on this one, but summing up is that it's hard all this and it's difficult and fair play to Liverpool for sort of at least having a go and let's see where it ends up. Uh, the second part of this show, then, as I said earlier on, uh, I sat down for 30, 40 minutes, more forty minutes actually, and had a chat with Simon Strachan about his statistical system, which is now being sort of adopted in Premier League football. He's from Gainline. Uh, have a listen to this. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you think about the show in general. Uh, please rate us and review us on both iTunes and Facebook. And, uh, yeah, listen out. More Anfield Rap stuff soon. We're speaking to Simon Strachan, who's from Gainline Analytics, uh, which sounds all very posh. Um, basically, uh, Simon's a rugby coach. And he works with Ben Darwin, who's a, who was a former rugby player. And the pair of them between them have come up with something called Cohesion Analytics, uh, which has been having a bit of an influence on sport, including the Premier League and including football. Uh, if you go along to their website, uh, there's some really interesting um, videos on there. It's www.gainline.biz. Um, and basically, the reason I decided to get Simon on the phone and have a chat is uh, a couple of Anfield Rap subscribers actually got in touch with us and, and they'd heard Simon and, and Ben uh, speaking elsewhere and they just thought it was really interesting and something a little bit different and, you know, haven't watched those videos and read up a little bit on, on Gainline Analytics. I think it's interesting too. So we've got you on, Simon. So, uh, yeah, start at the start, if you would, please, Simon. Um, you know, tell us about Cohesion Analytics and tell us about how Gainline come about and, you know, the, the, the story of it, really. All right, yeah, I will do. Uh, thank you, Gareth, and thank you very much for having me on. Um, it started um, about four years ago when Ben Darwin, the, uh, my co-founder, he um, pretty well retired from his 
or decided to retire from um, his job as a professional rugby coach and analyst. Um, it's pretty hard work working in professional sport, um, if anyone's had that experience. So Ben actually started his career um, as a, a well, professional rugby player. So he played for the ACT Brumbies here in Australia uh, in Super Rugby and played for the Wallabies. And in all that time, he actually played in the last sort of golden era of Australian rugby when Australia could actually beat the All Blacks uh, more times than not. But in that time, he would he would honestly stand on the pitch and say, individually, we are not better players than the New Zealanders, but there's, there was something about the Australian team that enabled them to win. And, and that stuck with him over a long period of time. And it, it, it went with him with his coaching and his analytics. And when he retired, he started a a database, um, the idea of starting a business, and uh, and he started putting together a, a database of every prof professional rugby league and rugby union player uh, in the planet. And the idea being that if a team wanted to source a player, they could basically come to the database, identify a player, all the bio data, where they're playing, uh, how long they're contracted for. But out of this exercise, he started to see some trends associated with teams, uh, how they recruit. Um, the successful teams and how they recruited and um, teams that weren't successful and how they recruited. And this started to really gel with his ideas about when he was playing for Australia. And this is when I came on board um, with the business. And, and from there, we, we really started to look to identify what were good teams doing or what were successful teams doing around how they were recruiting and what were the factors behind it. And that's where we got a, sort of the third member in, um, a fellow named uh, Pat Ferguson. And Pat, uh, is uh, has an economics background. He's currently now um, doing a PhD at Harvard, so he's a very cluey individual. And what he was able to do was was to look at those ideas and actually put them into some metrics. And what we were able to do is is essentially put this idea together and, and put it into some algorithms and start to measure what we co call cohesion. So the way teams recruited, and this was certain aspects around uh, the interrelationships of of teams, so we could measure the players histories and there's lots of different criteria that go into this but to put it very simply we measured um, players um, playing histories within the team and outside of the team and by doing that we came up with this metric called TWI or teamwork index and that measures what we call the cohesion or the interrelationship between the players it's not a psychological number it's more it's it's an objective figure about basically how much players have played together and, and, and how little they have played together. And what we found is that that had a very strong linear correlation to success. So the higher the cohesion, the more successful teams and the lower the cohesion, vice versa. But DWI is a really good indicator of long-term success. So teams that had high cohesion for a high period of time were successful over a high period of time and likewise the other way around. So, so from that, we started to look at teams, um, do, look at different sporting competitions and, and that gave us sort of a background of what cohesion analytics is about. So that was a, a couple of years ago. And from there, we've been able to really build upon that and, and to the point now where we can use the, the basis of TWI to actually look down to a game-by-game -game scenario and then look at, from a cohesion standpoint, how teams are performing day-to-day, um, uh, week-to-week, season-to-season and across seasons to really understand what the driver for success is um, going forward. So that's sort of a a brief two-minute summation of the last four years. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting from a sort of a football fan's perspective, you know, which I am, you know, because I think 
I think so much of the culture around football, certainly at Premier League level, certainly in terms of Liverpool, is that much of the supporter base feels the answer to achieving success is always going by a better player. I mean, you know, we're, we're literally speaking to you here, and you know, Liverpool have broken the the, trans, the, the club transfer record last night to sign Mohamed Salah, you know, for around thirty nine million at teams, and you know that. The fans are excited about that. I'm excited about that. I now can't wait to see that player. And yet maybe what goes amiss and, and, and perhaps fits in more with what you're saying is that, you know, the, the team that he'll be walking into, if you like, or the squad that he'll be joining is a team that's just finished fourth in the Premier League, is a team that won 76 points. And so it is therefore a team that was getting quite a lot right. Um, you know, certainly in terms of, you know, away from home, for instance, Liverpool's record the only one sort of seven points less than than Chelsea who won the league. So, you know, there's not loads to fix, if you like. I mean, obviously, we've got to think in terms of being in more competitions and that sort of thing. But it's very rare that you sort of hear fans having that conversation. I think it's more about, well, well who will Liverpool buy next? How much will they spend? And, and, and there's that culture, isn't there, around football about, you know, the way to fix things is to spend money. Well, that's exactly right. And that's... So a lot of people look at the skill of the players and the skill of the coach and say, well, they're good players, it's a good coach, then we should get success. So what's actually happened in the Premier League, so since it started all the way back in 92, 93, the actual cohesion in the Premier League has dropped significantly. So it's dropped by about 30% over that period of time. And that's because it's become more of a fluid market. So there is a lot more trading in the Premier League and because of that, um, because of that lot more trading, uh, the actual perception of performance is a lot different to what it was back um, at the beginning of the Premier League. So when players move around, you cannot necessarily gauge the quality of the player now because of the, the change of um, the cohesion levels in the Premier League. So, uh, for example, so in the in the late 90s, early 2000s, so Manchester United uh, were king, absolute king. So they had really high cohesion and basically a lot of money as well. So they ruled the roost. That changed um, when Ferguson left. And, and uh, uh, the cohesion has slowly dropped since then. And what that actually has allowed to happen is that it allowed a team like Leicester to actually shoot up because the actual ceiling of cohesion is actually pretty low. So it, it, uh, teams can shoot up now in the Premier League, where in the past they couldn't. Um, but it comes back to this whole idea that skill is the driver of performance. And what our work is slowly showing is that it is not um, as a significant driver of performance as, as what people think. And, and and that's the thing about when people look at their team and say, we've signed X, Y, Z, therefore we should go well. Um, and we know on so many cases that this, this actually doesn't happen. So, I mean, the thing about Mo Salah is he's just come from Roma. Roma finished second in Serie A. I think they finished second. So they're obviously a high-functioning team. Um, they're a high-functioning team as a group of individuals. And what we find is the the skill of a player is as much of a function of the players around them as the individual themselves. So he's going to come to a now he's going to come to Liverpool. He has to learn the relationships around. All the evidence suggests that his performance is going to drop, and we see that across all sports. We see that across business as well. That that when people move, their performance drops. And so this is the important thing now is the, the perception of how Mo Salah is going to go and how they incorporate him into, into the team going forward. 
Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, you know, when you think about it as well, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sitting in a, in a studio here at the Anfield Wrap and, you know, the wall's covered in pitches and, you know, a lot of those pitches are, are partnerships. So you know, the, 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 there's there's Toshak and Keegan, there's 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 Russians Al Gleish, the you know the centre half partnerships, you know Hippie, Hippie and um, and Henshaw, um, Hansen and Lawrence, and you know all this sort of thing. You know a, a lot of Liverpool's success has been has been built on understanding, and 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 I guess you know you've obviously done the analytics, you've got the reports, as I said earlier on as well. You know it's well worth watching. Uh, ben talking on the video on your website, you know it's a, it's a fascinating watch. And yet, you know, when you sort of stop and think about it, it does make a lot of sense because, of course, if you're playing with a player over a period of the time, it's going to help because, you you know, you're going to know what, what type of pass they like to play. They're going to know what run, you know, you're going to know what runs your teammate wants you to make. And you, and you just, you, you, I mean, you talk about teams gelling, don't you, and about, about partnerships clicking and all that sort of thing. And, you know, if you do go out and buy sort of seven, eight, nine, you know, first-team players in one summer... Then you know it, it sort of makes sense that you know you're not going to hit the ground running in August because those players are going to have to get to know each each other, aren't they? Well, that's exactly right. And I mean, the best example in the Premier League for us is the class of '92. So back when um, you think of the class of '92 and what they became, this is Manchester um, United, were, yeah, 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 Manchester United's class of '92. So they're out and out legends of the game. But when they were the class of '92. Yes, they're okay footballers, but we—I mean, we spoke. We've spoken with a very reputable Premier League manager who said um, he wouldn't have signed them because he didn't think that they would have been good. They were good enough because it wasn't necessarily their success later on. wasn't about their individual skill. It was about their ability, the fact that they came through the system, and that that virtually half of that Manchester United side had been together for so long over that period of time. And the one that's a great thing about Ferguson is that he knew when to bring people in and he knew when to get rid of them. Like there was a brave person that could get rid of Beckham at that point in time. The interesting thing about Manchester United was that that the knowledge was with Ferguson or, or this system was with Ferguson and not the organisation. So when he left and they changed manager, the new manager came in, started changing the systems. That didn't work. It must be the players. Let's start changing the players. And all of a sudden, if that didn't work, must be the manager. Let's play, change the manager. And they got into this cycle. So Manchester United now are just another top six Premier League where they used to be so far head and shoulders above the rest. And, and that sort of underlines the difficulty, doesn't it, of, of the job of manager, really, in, in modern football, if you like, because, you know, there are figures by you know the PFA and, and that sort of thing, League Managers Association, all the rest of it. They're they're always putting figures out every now and again, say showing how short, you know, managers' tenures are really at clubs. They're not given much of a chance, you know. So you're talking about you know your whole company is about how important cohesion is. Yet football doesn't really allow for this cohesion to take place, does it? it you know, it, it demands instant results, and when instant results don't come then nine times out of ten, the manager's getting fired. That's exactly right. So, I mean, two years ago, um, two years ago, the average manager tenure in the championship was 0.86 of a year. In the premiership, I think, it was 1.22 years. Now, that both of those have gone up slightly over the last couple of years, but it's just an indication of the the the, the drive of 
skill over team for skill over cohesion for success. But there's there's another factor at play here. So it's it's not necessarily it's not necessarily obviously it's driven around we want our team to be successful. Let's buy all these good players. But the the actual function of buying all these good players inherently does not make the team successful, and that's the problem, because the perception is we've got these stars, they should be able to perform. And so a lot of the occasions that we've looked at these teams is that the manager is actually performing to capacity. The team is actually playing to the best they could. And the, man, the, the there's not much the manager could have done. And so a lot of these managers are being sacked um, through perception, not necessarily through performance. And it, it is not really a sustainable system um, in my mind. And, and the thing about it is, I mean, for English football, for the the level of skill that's now being brought into the game in England, it has not helped the English game because the level of cohesion in the competition is now down because of the nature of the fluidity, the, the drop of cohesion. One thing we find is that players' skill can't improve in low cohesion environments. And so the general trend of English teams in Europe, even though the you'd say there's more skill in the in the teams, it hasn't actually transferred into the skill of the team in Europe and it hasn't transferred into the skill of the national team. So this drop in cohesion has been a detriment to the game in general. I, mean, I guess another aspect around cohesion as well is is the size of, of squads that are at some clubs as well. So I thought it was interesting in, in what Ben was talking about on, on your website where he was, I think he was looking at one rugby side that had used relatively few players and yet had achieved quite quite the success. And and this is another thing I, I almost think that sort of rails against a, a culture in top-level football in England, which is a culture of having huge squads. I mean, you know, taking Mo Salah as an example again, I mean, he's, he, he's labelled by some as being a flop at Chelsea. Yeah, he started something like eight games. So, you know, it, it's very hard to shine in, in eight games. And yet, you know, that's all he got. And then and then he was moved on and he was moved on to Fiorentina and then and then he's revived his career in, in Italy and eventually come back. But you know, that that the huge squad culture, the, the constant buying culture, you know, having these these squads packed full of stars, that can't help either, can it, with cohesion? Because I guess when those players are out there on the pitch they feel that pressure that, you know, I've got to perform today. And perhaps when they're feeling that pressure, they can't they can't maybe play the natural game. And that's true. And that's obviously a driver, especially in competitions where um, the teams have, um, I mean, there's no salary cap, they're private owners, so there is this drive for success. That, And we know that the manager's tenure is so short, relatively short, that there is... There is not necessarily what can I do now to enhance the prospects for next season or in 18 months, let's plan towards that. It is what am I going to do in the next three games so I don't get the sack? And unfortunately, that is one of the drivers that creates this um, scenario of, of this constant churn of players, this constant churn at the, the various transfer windows um, because there isn't this long-term sustainable look to how to develop teams. So a team like um, Southampton and a team like Bournemouth, when they came up, they came up with this this long-term philosophy. 
But unfortunately, you get to this tipping point where you've said, right, we've had this success. Now we've got to take the next step. And if they and and they they get to the point where they then start the churn and start buying in players, and then it doesn't, and they basically fall into that spiral. So Simon, I mean, I mean, tell us a little bit more about about gain line as well, if you would. So I mean, you know, I, I think we can get a grasp of, of of what your general points are around cohesion, and and anyone who hasn't got it so far, again, visit the website, watch those videos there. But you know. If someone wants to approach yourselves, I mean, you know, how does it work? What when you're working with clients, what is it you're doing with them? How can you help them win? Um, you know, what what basically what is the basis of your business? So, um, so the base of our business is really to optimize cohesion in teams, and and the, the one of our first steps we have to do is actually break through that assumption around what is the driver of success around is it skill or is it cohesion and so part of that is to be able to sit down with a team and actually explain how cohesion works how it functions and use a lot of the data we have to actually explain to them and whether or not that's examples about themselves or other teams in their competition um, etc and and we basically uh, take them through the process of of what cohesion is how it impacts and with with all our various sort of benchmark studies. From there, we, we do an analysis of their club. So um, we might, for example, um, 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 some of the work we've done in the Premier League, we will do a, a, a analysis of a team's entire history in the Premier League. So this is every trade you've made over that period of time. So every player, this is the entire history of the players. This is where they've come from. This is where they've gone afterwards. This is what your TWI um, cohesion and the other key cohesion markers that we also measure over that period of time. This is how it relates to your performance. This is the time normally when teams go, holy cow. So when we did that, we didn't realize that this was gonna be the result. We thought our goal was to go top four. We ended up middle of the table. This explains why. So part of that process is also based on their their recruiting trends is to identify where their cohesion is going against the competition. So they can say in our next three years, this is the expected result. And what that does within the within the organization is enables them to align expectations to reality. And this is the this is the important thing about keeping players or getting rid of players or keeping managers or getting rid of managers, is so that they understand that. Actually, for the last couple of years, we have been playing to capacity, so we don't have to sack the manager, or we don't necessarily have to do this to player X or Y. And the idea of it, it starts to um, give them the idea about what the drivers are to long-term success. So following that, we then work with the team to actually, uh, season by season, look at the competition. This is what's happening before the competition starts. This is what everyone else is doing. This is how their cohesion's changed. This is the expected outcome. And then in season, game by game, there are your cohesion markers for this game against the opposition. This is the expected outcome. Um, transfer time. If you're looking at play X, Y, Z or looking at exiting player ABC, this is going to be the result. This is where you're heading. There are certain some age profiles as well that we look at to understand what are the significant age profiles around driving cohesion as well. And then also feeder program. How do you work with your academy, et cetera, to bring players through? And, and when we started working, 
um, up until sort of the last few years, only being involved in Australia sport, Australian sport, where academy programs are quite strong, I was very surprised to learn how little flow through there is in the academy system in English football. Yeah, um, and that was a bit that was a big surprise for me. So you're sort of working uh, at the very top that top end of clubs. Then, so is it is it working with sort of sporting directors? Is it is it working with? It, it's almost above a manager's head, isn't it? It is, and in fact, sort of the 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 manager would is is really the sort of the lowest level we go down to because it's yeah. very much it it almost borders on governance because um, generally what we try to do is to say is is to is to get a club to realise are we a building club or are we a buying club are we a building club um, um, that that wants to develop what we're doing or a buying club do we just want to buy in SARS and that is something that's driven by the owner the board the CEO and so that's the the level we work and we basically then drive it down to the the coach because with the different levels of cohesion so we've got TWI long-term cohesion um, how we're going to look how we how we're tracking over one two three four years down to game by game and, and game by game is impacted by uh, manager selection team selection um, injury um, strength and conditioning support staff so we we work through from the governance level down to um, manager on the pitch level so so what do you make then Simon of it's a broad question this but we'll go with it uh, what what do you make of Liverpool basically what what have you made of Liverpool over you know say the past the past decade or so um so you know we, we we've chained through a few managers um we certainly had some bad ones higher Roy Hodgson um and we've had some we've had some good ones I think we're all quite enjoying Jurgen Klopp now um we, we so nearly won the league of course under under Brendan Rodgers and, and we're now all sick of the phrase we so nearly won the league under Brendan Rodgers because it would have been quite nice to actually win it uh, but I mean what what so what have you made of of how Liverpool have approached things so the interesting thing for us when looking at Liverpool, especially under Brendan Rodgers, is that when we were tracking the EPL or the, the Premier League, our expectation was, well, Liverpool were going backwards under Brendan Rodgers. The cohesion was going backwards. And even in that 13-14 season, when Liverpool came second, they had the eighth worst goals against record and that's one of the little things we see because what we find in cohesion it manifests itself itself quite strongly in defense so you can buy in strikers and you can buy attack but cohesion manifests itself really strong in defense and that's one of the markers we look at and that's one of the things that cohesion tells us if you are low in cohesion Defensive ability away from home ability is not necessarily that strong. And that's the thing about Liverpool in that 13, 14 year. Even though it came second, even though Liverpool came second, that was more of a, that was almost a furphy in regards to the, the trend of performance. And so we weren't surprised. I wasn't surprised that um, Brendan Rodgers left based on the way Liverpool was going. But the, this is where I feel sorry for, I think, uh, Brendan Rodgers in the fact that 
he's not he wasn't necessarily the head of recruiting. I think it's, there was a group of four. Yeah, don't right. know the exact details. Transfer committee. And so, yeah. yeah, and so they were the people that were making the decisions that impacted the cohesion, that impacted the ability to live for Liverpool to perform on the pitch, which was a reflection of Brendan Rodgers. He got. He unfortunately then he he basically had to pay the price. Wasn't necessarily. Um, he was doing his best with what he had, but unfortunately, because of the cohesion, that was going down. So, um, but it was I mean, interesting thing. Sorry, I was just going to say it, it, it. Cohesion was a lot to do with 2013, 14, though, wasn't it? I mean, a, an awful lot of people will pin that and and still pin that on the performance of Luis Suarez, and and will say that you know he's an out and out world star, which undoubtedly he is, and that it was his magic that basically took Liverpool so far. What that what that point of view ignores though is that Liverpool picked up plenty of points in his absence at the start of that season and also the fact that we got big performances or, or more to the point Brendan Rodgers got big performances out of a lot of players so Raheem Sterling was important that season even someone like John Flanagan playing at fullback was important that season he's now his career has took a big dip since but the point is that Liverpool were a team at that time you know Steven Gerrard was huge as well and you know, there's the famous clip of of Gerard getting them all together in a huddle and and saying, you know, we we, we go again, and you know, it did it did feel that that they were together and that and that they knew what they were doing, and and that's how they were go- they were going out believing in themselves and they were blowing teams away, and that can't that can't solely be down to one player, can it? No, well, that's exactly right. Yeah, and that that is right. Things we see lots of uh, trends and traits around cohesion. Um, ability to withstand stress and pressure and high cohesion teams have the ability to do that. High cohesion teams can win away from home. They've got good defensive records. So it's, it's those that, that they're the sort of things, um, those trends that we look at. So um, you, you said before, you mentioned before that sort of everyone seems to be enjoying Klopp. Like he's a, he's an out there character. So you yeah. sort of can't help, but not like him. For me, it's a really, um, an interesting scenario. I'd love to be able to sit down and talk to him about what he dis- what he found when he came and started managing in in England. Because coming from Germany, which is a mu- which is a higher cohesion competition, and by that definition, players naturally perform better in Germany than they do in England. And whether or not he actually spent the first season going, I'm not too sure what's going on, but I can't seem to get them right. And I reckon it was probably the same for um, Pep Guardiola as well at uh, Manchester City. In fact, it's probably more at Manchester City because Manchester City are one of the lowest cohesions in com- teams in the competition, but they can overcome it by having a, a massive wage bill. Um, but at, like at the moment, see Klopp's... Um, Winning percentage, I think, is still less than Brendan Rodgers, but I think Brendan Rodgers was um, pumped up by that 13-14 season. Yeah. Um, the 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 thing is, the thing is around for us, the way we look at it is at the top level of the game, at the absolute pointy end, which the Premier League is, the 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 difference in skill of players is minimal. The difference in the facilities of the clubs is minimal. The difference in the quality of the coaching is minimal, and so um, Klopp's 
tactical nous and the things he's looking for is not going to be much different to everyone else. And and this is why for us, um, for us cohesion, which is is for us is sort of misunderstood, is a big driver of success. And so the way we look at how Liverpool is going to go is by how they are trading. And it's not who they are trading, but how they're trading. And, and we talk about big money spends and the amount of money is almost irrelevant when it comes to um, trades or transfers. What you'll find is, is in the Premier League, it's not the value of the transfer is the amount of transfers and uh, there's a very simple statistic that shows the the quantity of transfers from the top clubs to the bottom clubs and the bottom clubs transfer a lot more players than the top clubs so there's a lot more stability in the top clubs than there is in the bottom clubs. And and that goes to why the top clubs are the top clubs because they have higher cohesion. So if you basically rank the Premier League, it's generally ranked by money, but yep. then it's ranked by cohesion after that because it's the rate of stability within the um, the team. So um, if, if, if Liverpool started trading three or four um, first-team guys, then that's when you get really worried. But if you're starting to bring one or two in, that's probably okay. And the other really critical thing to think about is their position. Because um, what we talk about is, I mean, position is really important because of the interrelationship. So the interrelationship between, say, a goalie and a striker is pretty minimal. But the interrelationship between midfielders is is um, a lot higher. And so they're sort of, again, the other things you would look at in regards to trades and, and, and what they're choosing to trade. So if you bring a couple of guys, new guys into the midfield or into the back four, then it's going to take time. Even though they may be a great, you know, maybe a, a great defender, it still takes time. Is this where it sort of gets important as well in terms of of profiling the players that you're going to go out and buy as well? So, so I mean, you know, I think a lot of supporters' conversations at times can be quite crude in terms of we'll, we'll literally look at a player and say, well, you know, he's knocked in 25 in France, so um, let's get him in. You know, he's fast and he can score goals. He, he can do that for Liverpool. But, you know, it, there's more than that that signals what, what type of person they are on. You know, so did he do it away from home? How often are they injured? Have they ever had any trouble with managers? Have they fell out with the teammates? You know, and... And, and you know to achieve this cohesion is what I'm saying really is you know you need you need the right characters don't you so you need someone who who's going to come in and work hard who's going to be open friendly is going to react to the manager's methods and and I guess all that all that must be really important when it comes to recruitments as much as it you know the raw data is really. Uh, yeah, it is. It is. However, um, to get. The way we look at it is because um, often people use the word culture. You know, they've got a good culture, and yeah. and for ninety five percent of the time, when you hear someone talking about culture, I don't think they actually know what's going on. They don't know what's going on, so they just use the word culture because it's it doesn't necessarily it explains everything, but it doesn't explain anything at the same time. Um, but one thing we found when looking at sports teams is that underlying it as long as there's normative behaviors as long as people work together there's cohesion on the field they don't actually have to like each other 
to still have cohesion on the field. For example, there are case studies around Mexican drug cartels and the mafia that are very effective, but they've, as you, you would think, they've got pretty poor cultures. There was a team, uh, an AFL, Australian Football League team here in Australia um, in the um, early, mid-2000s that were a very successful team over a 15-year period, but it turned out half of the people had a meth problem, but which was a poor culture, but they're actually very successful on the field because they all were sort of heading in the same direction. So it's really interesting dynamic around, it's a really interesting dynamic around um, the, the difference between culture and a team working together. Ideally, you want people with good character. There's no doubt about it because a lot of the evidence is suggesting if you have a person, if you have a person with a good character and an average skill, you can always upskill them. But it's very difficult to change someone's character. It's much easier to change the skill of a person than it is the character of a person. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that that does seem to me just so from looking on the outside in that that. that you know that's what that's what Liverpool are trying to do. I think with the with the players they sign, and I mean, you know, perhaps they can go out and and buy stars in inverted commas. But you know, some of these stars might not want to stick around at Liverpool for very long. They might be quite mercenary. They might, you know, you know, they might not want to immerse themselves in Liverpool. They might just look be looking at at it as a as a as a payday really. So all that's surely got to sort of come into it really when when they're recruiting players, I guess. Yeah, and we find, um, again, a lot of the evidence shows that the hardest move for a, for a professional sportsman is their first move from their, their first team away. But then after that, it gets considerably easier. So the more, the more moves they've done, the easier it is for them to move on. And so that's another factor that we see around um, recruiting specific players is, is their movement history really impacts their future movements as well. And there's a general rule that it, there's a general rule that it takes three years for a person to reach their peak performance once they've moved. It, it changes in sport, it changes across sports, and it changes in position. So if you've if you've got a guy who's moving around, he's been to a few clubs, and he knows he's only going to stay for eighteen months, that's not enough time for them to get to reach their actual personal capacity within the team. So you never actually. Um, they'll never reach their peak performance because they don't have an opportunity to spend the time with the players around them. I just wonder as well, where 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 does where does the cohesion analytics fit in then with, with the idea of a star, if you like, at a club? So, you know, for, for all that Jurgen Klopp, for instance, emphasises the power of the team over the individual. He, you know, he's, he's turned on journalists in press conferences and said that he doesn't want to discuss individuals on a number of occasions. He wants to talk about the performance of the team. You know, you've heard that over and over, not just from Klopp, from, from lots and lots of managers in different sports. And yet, nevertheless, despite Klopp saying that, you know, the data that around the wages that all Liverpool's players are paid says says something else, really. It tells tells a different story. So... So we know from what's being reported in the media that Philippe Coutinho is Liverpool's best played, best paid player right now. And so whether you want to put everyone on the same level and talk about the team or not, 
looking at the wages, it appears the wages appear to say he's our star player. He's the best player. He's the player that the manager most wanted to hang on to. And, you know, he went out of his way to say there's no release clause. We won't be selling him to Barcelona this summer, all that sort of thing. So how how does cohesion analytics fit into the idea of having a star? I mean, there's, there's the famous quote as well uh, from from Bill Shankly, who said the football team's like a piano. You need eight men to carry it, and three you can play the damn thing. So for a long, long time, there's been there's the idea of a team, and we get that. There's the idea of cohesion, which is what you know yourself specialises in. But there's also the idea of star players. So if um, if if there is a star player and they're part and they've got their job to do within the team and people understand what their job is, then there's no reason what it, why it doesn't work. What the issue when the issue arises is when you have your star player in the team and another star player arrives in the team. That's when you start to have some of these problems. What we find is high cohesion teams can absorb those players much better than low cohesion teams. So when you have a low cohesion team and you've got a number of star players, it's what's happening is that there's a there's this this shift of power in that one person wants to the, the rest of the team to play to the way they play, where the other person wants the team to play to the way they play. And so they're constantly be draw, being drawn between the different styles and then learning how to play that way. And of course learning how to play between people is the most important thing when you have a high cohesion team everyone has got a really good understanding about each how each other's play so when someone new comes in it's just a case it's just a quick case of adapting so it's it's a function it's a function of two things it's it's the cohesion level of the team and and um how a new if a new star comes in how they are brought in so that that that's interesting again. I think in terms of the, of Brendan Rodgers' time, then because you know while most people would say that Luis Suarez was the star of that that side, you had you also had Daniel Sturridge who isn't short of confidence and and will probably describe himself as a star. I'm sure as well. You had Raheem Sterling who, who obviously went got a big money move to Manchester City. You had Steven Gerrard who's one of the best players to ever wear the Liverpool shirt. So. It, it's it's surely credit then to Rogers that he was able to get the cohesion between all of those players. He was able to get a system that suited all of those players that got got Daniel Sturridge retaining, you know, good numbers in terms of goals. It got it, it got the best out of Suarez because I think this goes amiss in this conversation that you know Suarez did play under Kenny Dalglish and seemed to just hit the woodwork all the time, um, and yet all of a sudden he went up a lot of levels under Brendan Rodgers and he's in fact described him since as one of the best managers he's ever worked for so you know there is something happened there something special happened that season he, he got the he got the cohesion right didn't he certainly in an, an attacking sense because Liverpool scored yeah. over 100 goals yeah I mean you can and again I mean we can I suppose you can use the example of the class of 92 so all those guys came through and became star players but because they came through together it wasn't an issue because they knew how to play. It's when you start bringing in those star players, that's when you you, you have the issues. I know we um, we spoke with one um, Premier League or a perennial Premier League championship club um, that under their new owner, uh, the new owner's son was a avid Moneyball fan. And he said, I know how to get you a... A 
Premier League winning team using Moneyball theory and basically went out and sourced a whole bunch of players using just sort of event data, individual stats. This person is good at this, this person's good at that. And speaking with the sort of the management of the team, they said that for six months, it was like all they did was went out and actually shook hands and introduced each other. They were just introducing themselves to everyone and no one's skill improved. The game plan didn't improve because no one actually knew each other actually on the pitch. I mean, that, that was just a, it was almost a, it was just a classic example of what happens when you start bringing those players together like that. Okay, Simon. Well, it's been a it's been a fascinating chat. Is there anything anything you'd want to tell us a little bit more about about Gainline? If if people want to look you up, where can they find you? Is there any more stuff on what you've been talking about out there that you'd recommend? Um. Oh well, obviously you mentioned the the website www.gainline.biz. Also um, at GLA GL Analytics. Hashtag talent is not enough is our um, Twitter account. It's interesting for us is that because we're I mean we're effectively a startup company, so we um, part of our job is to is to look at sports teams and actually tell them how to draw how to. Um, develop their developer to sort of a sustainable method going forward and and we've spoken with people about what we do and they said this is great let's go out there let's raise four million dollars we'll bring on all these sales guys we'll get you in Europe we'll get you in the US and we'll start selling this stuff and it's like we sit there and so you've just described the worst Premier League team to us that just goes out there and gets a lot of money and buys all these people in and that that's not what we do. That's not the way. That's not our philosophy of what we tell teams. But this is what this is what we tell teams, and this is what we're going to do as a company. So we're slowly we're developing our company the way we the way our philosophy is around um, the developing of um, sports teams. So um, uh, so it's a really good exercise for us in um, being able to you know talk to guys like you and and sort of get your opinions on. On uh, the world of uh, the Premier League, especially um, to have that other influences and and other thoughts coming in from us for us. Well, it's been a fascinating chat for us as well, Simon. So you know, thanks for joining us, and hopefully everyone out there listening has enjoyed it. Do do look Simon up, and uh, thanks again. That that's been the Anfield Wrap. Sports Social Podcast Network.